questioning God. And Lord, I, I thank you that they did so. I, I pray, God, that, that your Holy Spirit will speak to them. And others, God, who are just really keeping you at arm's length for whatever reason, God, help them you know, tear down those walls that have, that have prevented them from coming to you. And Father, be, be lifted high in this place this morning. God, do a special work in our midst. Holy Spirit, speak through me, your servant. I'm just a messenger. Lord, it is you that we want to get all the credit and all the glory and all the acknowledgement. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, again, Merry Christmas, guys. I want us to think about this morning, this idea of a king who worked hard to establish his kingdom. Okay, just, just picture this. He's a good king who's ruled his people with, with justice and with love and with care. And he's established cities within his kingdom, and he's put people in charge of those cities, and, and he's wanted things to, to continue on as he meant it to be. But, but one of those cities, let's say, became corrupted and began to be compromised. And then a foreign army came to overtake this city, and the city had nothing to do because it was morally bankrupt, and it was powerless against this other army. Who can step in to deliver this city? Who, who is equipped to come in and rescue the people who are in trouble? And of course, it's none other than the king himself. The king who has reigned justly, the king who has compassion on his people, but also a king who has a passion for the honor of his name. Those are his people. Christmas is God's rescue mission, as our sisters have said earlier already. They stole my sermon notes. Christmas is God's rescue mission. It is the king of this universe who put his people on this planet, and his people rebelled against him, and now they are in trouble. And the king of the universe has compassion on his creation, and not does he only have compassion on us, but secondly, and this is important, we miss this sometimes, he has a zeal for the honor of his name. If Christmas is about God's love for us, but don't, don't, don't misunderstand, it's also about his love for himself. He, he put us on this earth to magnify his glory, to bear his image, and now that we've strayed, he wants to make sure his honor and his glory and his image is remains as he intended it to be. So God had to step in and do something about it. And that's why when we talk about Christmas, we talk about creation. We talk about Adam and Eve in the garden, how they took the fruit and ate of it, and sin entered the world. And, and I was reading this week, uh, an, African, um, an African church father named Athanasius. You may have heard of the name before. Athanasius is one who first put down in writing a a strong defense of the fact that Jesus is God. And it's clearly in the scriptures, but he wrote a book on the very thing called On the Incarnation. And Athanasius starts out in the Garden of Eden, talking about when humanity fell, as he prepares to share why Jesus came. And what I love about Athanasius, he says this, you may be wondering why we are discussing the origin of men when we set out to talk about the, words becoming a, the word becoming a man. He says, the former subject is relevant to the latter for this reason. It was our sorry case that caused the word to come down. Our 
transgression that called out his love for us so that he, ha- he made haste to help us and to appear among us. It is we who were the cause of his taking human form and for our salvation that in his great love he was both born and manifested in the form of man. Then he says, for the human race would have perished utterly had not the Lord and Savior of all, the Son of God, come among us to put an end to death. So it was yours and my sorry case, (laughs) according to Athanasius, that made Jesus come down. That's what we find in the Bible. This is what we find. This is the reason a rescue mission was needed. You don't send out a rescue team and there's nothing to be rescued from. But Christmas is God's rescue mission for his people in rebellion. Now, this idea of our rebellion isn't a popular idea, isn't it? And people don't like being told that we are broken, that we're lost, that we push away. Like someone last Sunday was telling me that they had this conversation with someone at work. And, and, and that this is true. This is a tension for us. And it's a tension for our culture. But we must understand we need to be rescued. You and I need rescue. We, we must understand the, the depths of our hearts. We say, I've never shook my fist at God, but, but when we live our lives without any need for him, it's like saying, God, I really don't need you. I, I got this, God. It's this, this self-dependence, this, this declaration of independence from God when we live our lives without surrendering to him. And so what Jesus did was come down to remind us not only of our need for a way for us again to have a relationship with him. This is God's rescue mission, and this is where we're going to be picking up again in the book of John, chapter 1. My hope and prayer, as I mentioned last week, and I really mean this, is I, I want us to feel the awe of what Jesus did. I mean, the more I've been thinking about this, it's just in awe of our God. And I just hope and pray that you will come away with the same thing. And, and for others of us who maybe are still unsure about where we, uh, we stand when it comes to Christianity, that you would really see that this is what your life ought to be about. God's plan for you. So we're going to begin here in John chapter 1, and the Bible in the chair in front of you is page 886. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17 again, as I read last week, even though we're only going to be focusing on verses 14 and following, but um, I, I want us to get the scriptures in front of us. And as I did last week, if you're able to, would you please stand with me as we read God's word spoken to us about God's word becoming manifest to us. Here we go, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Who said the word was God? He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came bear witness about the light. For the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He 
was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh. Can you say the word became flesh? And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Then verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. rescue mission, a rescue plan, and that's what we're going to be unpacking here today. As we looked at last week, John, the book of John is written for the very purpose of calling people to believe in Jesus. This this is what it's all about. This is what we preach. This is what we care mostly about. And in doing so, he says, I want you to know, though, about Jesus and his beginning. In fact, in the beginning was Jesus, and there was never a time in which he was not what John tells us. He was not only with God, but he was God, and all things came into being through him, which means he cannot have ever come into being, because then it wouldn't be all things. You follow that? Let me say that again. Some, te- some people tend to think that Jesus was a created being. They say Jesus not was God, but he was a God, and that's not clearly in the text, and that's not the way it should be translated. There's only one Bible in the history book, and it's translated that way, and it's a wrong one. But what John is telling us, Jesus has no beginning. Jesus created everything. If he himself was created, it cannot be said that he created everything. We would need to say he created everything except for himself. But here John tells us all things were created by him, which means he himself cannot be a created being. John is establishing very clearly the belief that all the Bible teaches, that Jesus is indeed God. He is God's word. And the word, this idea of the word is this, is this uh, uh, in Greek philosophy, was that the word was its highest being. They called it the logos. But they didn't have a concept of what that was. They just knew within that there was something out there that was greater. And they called it the word, the logos. And, and in the Old Testament, this same idea of the word was when God would speak and he would act through his word. He would deliver his people by his word. He, he would reveal himself through his word. And, and here John says this in verse 14. And the word became flesh. God's word, this this idea of some greater being, became flesh. It's what we call in theology the incarnation. It comes from the Latin word the encarne, right? In flesh. He came in meat. He came with bones and skin. And this is how God had to do his rescue mission. That's why I love that song we sang, the first song. It says, word of the Father, now in flesh. Let us adore him. 
that's, that's the heart of the message. The word became flesh. Now, when I talk about earlier wanting us to feel a sense of awe, want us to see the glory that's here, this is crucial. I'm going to park here for a moment that, that the word that God became a man. Let that sink in. The word became flesh with all its limitations. In fact, in the book of Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus emptied himself. Not that he ever ceased to be God, but when, when Jesus came onto this earth, he chose to allow himself to be limited by human, his humanity. Uh, just think about this. He was limited. He, ter- he chose to enter the limitations of time and distance. God never gets older. God was never young. God is outside of time. He doesn't age. He is God He's outside of time. And so this word of the Father also is outside of time, never was old, never was young, yet became and entered into our limitations, and Jesus had to mature. Just think about that. God chose to allow himself to need to grow up. That would include us. The limitation of time, but what about the limitation of his mind? Jesus wasn't having conversations from the manger. He just wasn't, because he was a baby. The eternal God was a baby, allowing the limitations of mind, allowing the baby. The limitation of space, the one of whom it says the whole earth is full of his glory, that the heavens are his throne, and the earth is his footstool, entering into a human body that has height and weight and an arm span. God was there. God was him. That would include us. The limitations of ability. This was the one who spoke the word into existence without dropping a word. He sculpted the planets He made the heavens his canvas. He put the fish in the sea and the crown jewel of all his creation he made from dirt and a rib. And it's this God who chose to allow himself to become hungry, to be tired and fall asleep on a boat. say the word became flesh, let's not overlook something. He had all the rank in the galaxy and chose to submit himself to birth with all its limitations. See, early on in church history, there's a guy named Anselm, St. Anselm of Canterbury. He wrote a book called Why the God of Man. And he tried to answer this question, why did God limitations of time, space, ability. And the conclusion he makes is what the Bible makes ever so clearly. Why the God-man? Well, because that was the only way for the king to demonstrate his compassion on his rebellious people and preserve the honor of his name. 
This is why. See, Jesus had to be God, had to be man in order for us to be saved. And this is so crucial. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, then you don't have a perfect sacrifice for your sins. And if you don't believe Jesus to be man, you don't have a substitute for your human sins. As a perfect God, as a human on this earth, on that cross, in order to redeem. That's why the God of all. That's why Jesus emptied himself. That's why the word became flesh. For the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus said, I had to shed my blood. Because we needed forgiveness. But it's not like this, uh, this caught God by surprise. As I mentioned last week, this wasn't plan B. God has always been in control. And how that all works, I don't know. I'll tell you that. But what I do know is God put signposts from the day that Adam and Eve sinned to the day Jesus came. He put signposts saying, I'm going to do something here. Because in Genesis 3.15, God tells Adam and Eve, he tells Eve in particular, I'm going to have one of your children, one of your descendants come to crush the serpent. And from that point forward, there are those who took on an idea of what Jesus ultimately would fulfill perfectly. Like Joseph, who was rejected by his brothers, suffered unjustly, and yet his suffering saved people. That points to Jesus. Or we think of Moses who said, there's going to be a prophet like me from among your brothers, but he won't fail where I failed. Or like Joshua who brought God's people to the promised land, there's going to be another one who brings God's people to the promised land of promised lands where there is ultimate rest. Signposts throughout the Old Testament. The child of Isaiah 9 who is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Signposts of this happening. And when the Word became flesh, He was humanity's maker. He was Israel's Red Sea divider. He's Joshua's land provider. He's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's fiery furnace insider. He's Moses' lawgiver. He's Ruth's ultimate kinsman redeemer. He's prophecy's promise keeper. This is the God of all, who became a man for all. And in order to know God, you must know the God-man. And this is what Jesus did when he became flesh. He didn't begin to exist there. He's always existed. He's always been acting. And all the scriptures has always been saying that he was coming. And then he came. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So not only did he become flesh and hide off somewhere, but he became flesh and lived among us. He dwelt among us. This isn't some, some rapper or, or athlete moving back into the neighborhood. This is God on the block. This, this is what Jesus dwelt among us. The word dwelt literally means tabernacle. No doubt for God's people, when they read, the Israelites, when they read this, they thought, 
The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. See, the tabernacle was a tent that God gave to Moses and, and, and Israel where God says, when you come to this tent and you come with your heart and soul fixed on me, I will meet you there. I will choose to allow my presence be made known in the tent. And Jesus comes as the tent and the ultimate fulfillment of God's presence. God came to the earth personally, up close and personal. This idea of a tabernacle, of a tent, also brings to, no, to mind Jesus pitched his tent among us. The tents aren't permanent. See, Jesus came with a very clear mission, and his mission wasn't to live here forever on this earth right now. He came with a mission to save. He came from heaven to earth allow for us to go from earth to heaven and in both cases earth is temporary Jesus had a clear mission I don't know if you've been following the the tragedies that are happening in California these wildfires over a million acres already consumed and it's just heartbreaking isn't it seeing the footage it's surreal Um, but you know when when, when we see these tragedies we always see different kinds of of heroes kind of rise to the surface and in this case, I was watching some footage about different firemen and firewomen just giving of themselves to put out these blazes. And in one, one video I saw, they were, uh, they're, they're taking turns going to the front lines, if you will. And, and while it wasn't their time up, they were trying to get some rest in. I, I saw pictures of firemen sleeping on flatbed trucks and on front lawns of places the fire hadn't come to yet, using rocks as pillows. And what is very clear that they have a concern because the fire needs to be put out. And they are willing to leave the comforts of their homes, the the comforts of all they know, to risk their lives to put out these fires. And I guarantee you, you interview any of them, none of them will tell you that that grass is a good place to live. But they're saying, we're doing it because we've got a mission. In the same way, Jesus came to this earth. He didn't come to live here right now, right now. He will one day. But right now, he came with a mission, and that mission was to redeem the lost people and the honor of his name. He came for us. Notice how John says he dwelt amongst us. Us. Who's the us? Well, Athanasius says the us is the sorry church. Reading through the book of Judges, and the very last verse of the book of Judges is most telling. It's a very sad book, quite a depressing book, most of it. But the last verse of the book of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we see them perceiving what is best and doing what is wrong, spiraling out of control. It is that us that Jesus came. Those who do what's right in their own eyes. He dwelt among us. The thing about Christmas, and we talked about this already, the name Emmanuel, the name that, that Jesus takes on for himself, which means God with us. John tells us here that he dwelt among us. And there's a lot of times where in life we do feel quite alone, don't we? The holidays in particular tend to bring those things out to the surface. You must know. That God's rescue mission is to be present, present with you. 
Christian today, if you are a Christian, and I say if because not everyone is, not everyone in this room today, you're only Christian when you put your faith in Jesus and you repent, you turn away from your sin, you believe in him, you live for him. That, that's what makes us a Christian. But if you are a Christian, then God has promised his presence with you. Always. He not only dwelt among us, but he then gave us the spirit to live with us. And for those who've never put their faith in Jesus, this is what God offers to us as part of his rescue mission. His presence. God tells us God became flesh and he dwelt among us. But then John goes on to say what this mission entailed and what he saw with this mission is that he saw one who was glorious. And we have seen, he says, his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John says when we looked at Jesus, we saw something of God's glory. Yeah, now, clearly, it's not that when Jesus walked around, he had this light bulb or this halo around his head. And the reason we know that is because people rejected Jesus. If he came walking around shining everywhere, everybody would be like, okay, there's something different about this guy. But what does John mean then when he says, we saw Jesus, we beheld his glory, we saw glory? What is it? Well, what does the scriptures mean when it says the whole earth will be full of his glory? does tell us is that Jesus' glory was something that John and others could see, but what did it entail? Well, I think our answer to that is in the book of Exodus, chapter 33, and I'm going to summarize it here for the sake of time. I've mentioned Moses a number of times, and this opening chapter of John just leaks this image from Moses in the temple and the tabernacle, but there was a day once when Moses was on the Mount Sinai with God. And Moses was distraught because God's people just made some golden calves, almost got destroyed, and, and, and God's like, go ahead, Moses, lead the people. And Moses was like, I'm not going anywhere without you, God. I need you here with me. And then Moses makes a request, a request for the ages. He says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And what's so beautiful is that God accommodates himself to Moses' request. God says this, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, and man shall not see me and live. Scripture goes on to tell us that God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes by Moses and Moses catches it. God say his glory entails? He says, I will let all my goodness pass before you. So God is saying this to Moses, and this is, I think, what John saw in Jesus, that God's glory is evident in all of God's goodness. The, the radiance of his perfections is a display of God's glory. And I say, what does that mean? Well, well, for Moses, he saw that God was merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast, steadfast love. He saw God's works and his will. And he says, I have seen God's glory, his perfections. And in the same way, John says, when we saw Jesus, we have seen his glory. We saw Jesus in his perfection. Now, there is a story in Matthew 17 where where John, James, and Peter, they go 
up on a mountain just like Moses did, and they see Jesus transfigured, which means they see his glory shining on his body. But, but I think John has much more in mind here. He says, we saw Jesus' glory as he walked this earth. Uh, not just shining, but we saw it in his teachings. We saw it in his actions. We saw it in what he did. When he turned water into wine. When he fed the 5,000. When he raised Lazarus. We saw God's glory on display. When, when Jesus made those I am statements, they saw God's glory on display. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, they saw something of God's glory and his perfection. Of course, on that cross, then the empty tomb, they saw God's glory. So John says, we beheld his glory. We saw his glory, the kind of glory that only comes from the Son, from the Father. What a great and true thing. See, in the same way, I think God wants us to behold the glory of Jesus, not just in Christmas season, but for all of our lives. And what it's telling then and what's telling now is that people saw Jesus, and his glory was so evident to John, everywhere Jesus went, everything Jesus said, everything Jesus did, and yet people rejected him. Which is to tell us that when our eyes are blinded to the beauties of God, we reject him. Just in those days, as God himself walked among people and they rejected him. God himself is displaying his glory to you and me. Because he was Jesus. Have you believed him? Have you rejected him? It's more than acknowledging Jesus existed, but it is a giving of your life to follow him. It is a surrendering of all to who you are. And John says, we saw his glory there's times in my life where I just got to get away with the Lord and say, God, I'm not seeing you the way I know I need to see you today. I'm, I'm busy. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious. I'm, I'm thinking about all other kinds of things. I'm not seeing you. And I know what I need to do and what Scripture shows us is that I need to get alone with God. I need to pray. And like Moses, I say, Lord, just show me yourself in a different way today. Help me see your perfection. Help me stand in awe of the incarnation. Help me see my brokenness and my need in a fresh way that I could see your rescue mission and be in awe of you and your glory. That's what we got to do. Lest we be like the others in John's day who were with Jesus and uninspired by him. John says, we saw his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So he says, not only did the word become flesh, not only did we see his glory, but we also saw the grace and the truth by which he stood by. Well, what does that mean? Well, what is John referring to here? He goes on to say, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. That's John the Baptist speaking. When he saw Jesus, he says, hey, he's more important than me. He was before me. He's eternal. In verse 16, for from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, the grace of truth came through Jesus Christ. See, what John says, when we saw Jesus, we saw God's grace on display. And God's grace is God's unmerited favor. It's, it's him displaying blessing toward people who don't deserve it. That's grace. And God's truth is God standing by what is true, what, what is right, what is good and pure, and exposing lies. And both 
those things were evident in Jesus. Now, this is extremely important because as John says here, that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, this is, this is at the heart of the New Testament movement. You see, Moses, when he went up to that mountain, he took the Ten Commandments down, and he had the law of God in those Ten Commandments and in the other commandments that followed. And the law has one purpose. It exposes our hearts. It's like walking into a room with black lights and looking on your shoulder to see how that reads. The law is a black light on your soul. And what it does is faithful to expose then by, by, by default when it comes down. The law is not a bad thing because it shows us our need. It's a dangerous thing because it also condemns us. And so what Jesus has done, the word become flesh, his glorious evidence filled with grace and truth, he has come to the law and says, no, the law is not bad, but I'm bringing grace and I'm bringing truth. And the grace and the truth is this. The truth is the law separates us from God. The truth is, apart from Jesus, we deserve hell. The truth is, from the day we were born, that's where we're going. The truth is, there's nothing you can do to earn God's love. The truth is, there's nothing you can do to get to heaven by your own strength. The truth is, your good works are not good in God's sight. This is the truth that Jesus came with. But he also came with the grace saying, but... I'm the perfect God, and I'm the perfect substitute of a man, and I'm going to take your sin on me. When I go to that cross, I'm taking your punishment that the law exposed and pronounced over you. And he was cursed on that tree, on that wooden cross. It was grace that was hardened in front of Jesus. When John says, you saw grace and truth, law condemned, but Jesus came to save you all. And then he finally gives a name to the word. He says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John finally, for the first time in his book, mentions Jesus' name. And it's this Jesus who embarks on God's ambitious Christmas mission. It's this Jesus who we bring. Family, we've got to understand the gulf that separates us from God in order to understand the glory You are to know this God. You must know who God is. You must know Jesus. He made a way coming from heaven to earth for you to go straight to heaven. And you see his death on the cross. I love it. Basically what John is telling us, in Jesus' presence, all of God's goodness is hidden within Christ. I pray that God would give you eyes to see Jesus Christ in fresh faces you would see his coming, that you wouldn't see him in manger a mere baby, but you would see God. That you wouldn't see a cute nativity story, but you would see the one whom the wise men knelt down before and worshipped. That you would see the one who would grow up and never sin. You would see the one who willingly went to the cross. That you would see this I said, awe. I hope you're feeling a sense of awe. God emptied himself. He gave you you. He came to redeem you. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says,
responses. For the love of Christ constrains us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Well, this is the choice we've all got. If you put your faith in Jesus, will you live for yourself or live for the glory of God? See, anyone who's been truly touched by God's love, his love compels us to live for him. As I mentioned last week, this is why we made this missional Christmas service. It's not a, it's not a, a, a cute little thing we're trying to put together. We, we want you to feel compelled to be on God's mission. And not compelled by my speech, but compelled by God's love. Compelled by the incarnation. Compelled by God, the ultimate missionary, saying, God, I want to join you in your mission. I want others to be compelled to put their faith in and say, God, I'm done. I'm done trying to do this on my own. And I say this often here, and I mean it. If you say, God, I want not to live for myself anymore, but for you. That's where faith begins. You see the glory in the Savior's domestic. That's the case if you'll see that you've got the key there. Opportunity to make your day now in a dark world and allow this key to shine in. In a moment, I'm going to pray, but I'm going to ask you after I pray, I encourage you to come up. Family, I want us to be people who pray. There's no reason why we have a God who invites us into his presence that we carry a great burden. And so I know that we all carry burdens. I know that we all feel anxious. We feel pain from our own decisions, from life. We have burdens for people that we love, that don't know this Jesus. When our prayer team comes up here to the front, and when they come up, they'll be at the back as well. They want to they carry those burdens. They want to carry the weight that you feel and help you come to this God and find the, the joy, the peace, and the love that Jesus offers. And so let's take advantage of that. And as we close here, we always close with a song. And we do it because we want to respond to what God has told us. We open our service to this song because we want our hearts right. We just want to want to cry out to God and express our need for Him and love for Him. We open God's Word because we want Him to teach us. And then we close the song because we want to respond to Him. And so when we, we respond, let's not just sing a song as if it's just a song. But we're joining what the angelic beings are doing in heaven right now. It's worship. It's worship of our King who came to save His people and to restore the honor that He has. And He has done so. God, you've never been young. You'll never be old. But you are the infinite days. God, for reasons beyond us, we, we, we don't understand why you made this earth to begin with. But we know that through your creation, you have chosen to give the life.
Let's not be too quick to think that the world and this universe revolves around us. It doesn't. It revolves around you, God. It is your name that is above all names. It is your glory that shines greater than anything. It is your reputation that we will love and adore. And so, Father, as we think about word becoming flesh, help us see your glory in you sending Jesus, help us see your glory in Jesus himself, and help us come to you, God, with those kind of hearts of submission, with hearts of thankfulness, with hearts of selflessness, God. God, we need you. So restore the wonder, God. Restore the so thankful and ready to see you celebrate.